Hey, you guys, probably wondering where I'm at. Um, I'm on the stage of Mission Church Ventura. We helped uh, plant this church in Ventura, uh, us as well as uh, a lot of other churches, but uh, Tommy and Lauren are here, and Tommy's doing uh, worship internship here, and Lauren is doing children's ministry, and, and so it's an opportunity this weekend for me to get to preach here at a church that we helped plant. In two years, they're running 600, getting ready to start a third service. It's awesome in Ventura, California. And hey, I'm not stupid. I get to be in California. I was in uh, California in San Diego this week with my friend Gene Apple, who's going to preach for you this weekend. Um, and he took the bullet and decided to go back to Chicago and preach for me while I got to stay out here because he gets to live here all the time now. Okay, you get that. You may know Gene's uh, name from being the uh, senior pastor of the Barrington campus of Willow Creek, one of the teaching pastors there, one of my good longtime friends, and uh, I asked him to come and preach. He's actually got a kid that lives in Chicago, so we're kind of helping each other out a little bit this weekend. Uh, doing the Seven Deadlies, um, I, I just wanted to have him come in and do one. He picked greed. I don't know if it's because he thinks I probably couldn't do it justice because I have such a problem. I don't know, but uh, I'm really excited for Gene to be here with you. Uh, he interned at the same place I did. We've been family friends forever. He and Barbara, some of our best friends, and I hope that you will give as warm a Chicago welcome as you possibly can to my friend, Gene Apple. Thank you, Parkview. How's everybody today? Everybody good? Warmed up for you a little bit. I brought it with me. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, it's an honor to be here today, man. I love this church. I love your staff. I love your worship team. Aren't they awesome? And uh, bring you greetings from Eastside Christian Church in Anaheim, California, home of the Mighty Ducks, Mickey Mouse, and the most expensive, I mean, happiest place on earth. And uh, uh, how fun to be here. As Tim mentioned, uh, I have literally known Tim and his wife, Denise, since we were kids, and I'm not making that up. And uh, so, like, nobody is more surprised than me how well he's done with his life. I'm, I'm just <laughs> telling you right now. Uh, no, actually, I've got all the dirt on him because I've known him all my life, so I can be bought. I do have a price, and I'd be glad to share that with you. Uh, you know, but I do want to say a word about Tim because sometimes, you know, when somebody's been in church for so many years, you can take them for granted a little bit. And I don't know if you know this, you have one of the great pastors in America at Parkview Christian Church. You really do. And uh, people respect this church. You may not know, you know, you may uh, think, hey, we got kind of a cool thing going here, but I want you to know churches all over the country and all over the world look to Parkview for inspiration and leadership and vision and I just hope you don't take for granted what God, I mean, this is not normal, what's going on. And it's not normal to have over 1,200 baptisms in a year. Uh, that's just not normal. And uh, there are followers of Jesus who would give their right arm to be a part of a church like this for one week of their life, uh, let alone every week. So I just hope you never lose the magnitude of the miracle of what God is doing in this church, because it's just an amazing, amazing thing, and I'm honored to be here today, and I know some of you are probably wondering right now, Gene, is that your real voice? Do you really sound like that? And, uh, you know, I asked your audio team, said to give them a hundred bucks if they could make me sound like Barry White today, you know, kind of a, Jesus loves you, baby, something like that. Uh, but instead, when God was giving out voices, I got one that sounds like I've been inhaling helium for four days. So that's what you're stuck with today. Well, last weekend, Tim launched this brand new series on the seven deadly sins. 
And since the Middle Ages, uh, theologians have identified these seven deadly sins like gluttony and envy and lust and sloth and greed and anger and pride as being deadly because they're so destructive to our spiritual lives, because they drive a wedge between us and our relationship with God. And uh, Tim asked me to speak on greed today. I remember this a little differently. He's like, I, I chose this, you know. Uh, I think he knew I needed this message, or, or maybe he just wasn't man enough to speak on this subject today, and he <laughs> wanted me to do it. I think maybe the true reason he asked me to speak on greed today is I lived for 18 years. I was the pastor of a church for 18 years in the greed capital of the world, Las Vegas. And a lot of people are surprised, you know, to discover that there are churches in Las Vegas. You know, Las Vegas church kind of sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it, you know? And uh, people wonder, you know, well, what was church like in Las Vegas? Did you have an Elvis impersonator doing the prelude, you know, on Sunday morning? Did you have girls in bikinis announcing hymn numbers, you know, kind of the... <laughs> Did you have tithe machines in the church lobby, you know, what, what was that like? And actually, church in Las Vegas is like church anywhere else. We were just paid a little differently uh, as pastors. Rather than get a paycheck once or twice a month, our board would call us in every Monday and give us a roll of quarters and wish us luck for the week. And uh, no, that's not true, so don't repeat that, Okay. I always thought of Las Vegas as kind of greed on steroids. I remember when I was uh, in my late 20s, I was meeting a buddy for uh, lunch one day. We were both 27 years old, living in Las Vegas. I'm waiting in the restaurant parking lot for him. I pull up in my Dodge. He pulls up in his brand-new two-door Mercedes convertible coupe. And I looked at his Mercedes, and I looked at my Dodge, and I looked tell you, if I wasn't such a spiritual giant, I think I might have struggled with greed a little bit at that moment. But I didn't. I dinged his door a couple of times, but I, 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 I didn't struggle with greed, I'm happy to say. Well, the land of the world's largest hotels and volcanoes that smells like pina colada and uh, Cirque du Soleil shows advertises itself to the world, you know, as the American way to play what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Let me tell you what stays in Las Vegas. Psychology Today ranked Las Vegas one time as the most stressful city to live in in the U.S. It leads the nation in divorce rate, leads the nation in alcoholism rate, leads the nation in drug addiction rate, leads the nation in suicide rate, leads the nation in teen pregnancy rate. Las Vegas is number one in all these areas, and I would tell you after spending almost two decades of my life there that the heart of this city that needs so much grace is the desire to acquire gone haywire. It's this unction for consumption that beats inside all of us. And I think we could all admit, I mean, there's a little Las Vegas in all of us, isn't there? There is in me. There probably is in you. I mean, last year, Americans, we spent more than we earned. We're high achievers, you know. We received over 5 billion credit card offers in the mail. Even our dogs and three-year-olds got credit card offers because they got to have their bling, too. And check your pacemaker on this one. More Americans declared bankruptcy last year than graduated from college. The desire to acquire is not only wreaking havoc in our personal financial lives, it's doing destructive to our sp destruction to our spiritual lives. And I think this is why Jesus talks so much about the subject of money. You know, Jesus had more to say about money than he did about the subjects of heaven and hell and prayer combined. 
And the reason that Jesus talks so much about money is that Jesus was not trying to get your money. Jesus was trying to prevent your money from getting you. He knew that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your money goes, your interest, your heart follows close behind. You buy a stock and all of a sudden, you know, it's got a little bit of your heart. You're interested in that company. Jesus isn't interested in capturing your money. He's interested in capturing you. And friends, today, I don't want anything from you. Remember, I'm the guest speaker. I'm going to walk away and fly home after this is over. I just want something for you today. I want to unpack for you a story today that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 of the New Testament. It's about a Wall Street kind of guy. He's a visionary. He's a leader. He's an entrepreneur. He's an he's a, he's a innovator. But he fell for the myth that our stuff will bring us a sense of self-worth and security and satisfaction. And if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, it's in Luke chapter 12, you know, third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, chapter Luke. We're going to bring the scriptures up on the scene. And here's the setting of Luke chapter 12. Verse 1 indicates that Jesus is teaching a crowd of many thousands. It's a crowd much bigger than the crowd that's here today. And he's talking to them on a variety of subjects. And from the crowd, there's an interruption. A guy from the crowd interrupts Jesus, and he says, Teacher, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, here's something I bet you've never seen. A family squabble over money. <laughs> bet you've never seen that in your marriage. Bet you've never seen that in your family, you know. There's a conflict over the proper division of an estate going on here. You know the old saying, where there's a will, there's a relative, and that's what's going on here. <laughs> and this guy felt that injustice had been done to him, and he asked Jesus to divide the inheritance between him and his brother equally. He doesn't ask Jesus if he merits a cut of the estate. He, he's already decided he deserves it, and he wants Jesus to rule in his favor. Verse 14, Jesus replied, man... Who appointed me a judge or arbiter or arbitrator between you? You know, who appointed me to do that? And then in the next verse, Jesus gives this strong warning to the thousands of people that are gathered there that day that's at the heart of this parable. Verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of, say it, greed. Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Just soak on that last phrase for a moment. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Notice Jesus doesn't say possessions are bad. Jesus doesn't say possessions are evil. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. You've got to have some of it. Jesus is just saying you can't find life in your stuff. You can't find life in your possessions. And he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because you're not going to find life there. Life cannot be found in your possessions. You see, greed is not defined by what something costs you. It's measured by the damage that it does to you. And to drive that home, Jesus tells this provocative story about a Wall Street type guy kind of a workaholic venture capitalist. Jesus begins this story in verses 16 and 17 of this text, and he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. It's 
really going good. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I mean, this guy's already quite affluent. He's already hit the big time. And this guy is not a bad guy. You notice Jesus is not criticizing his affluence here. He's gained his wealth honorably. He's worked hard for his wealth. So far, so good. If Jesus were telling the story today, he might say, this Wall Street guy pulled home one late Friday afternoon into a six-car garage, driving his Beamer, walked into the house, took off his coat, kissed his wife, went down to his corner office down the hall, took his laptop, and opened it up because he had a lot of thinking to do about this weekend. He started looking at his Excel spreadsheets, he started looking at his stock prices that were continuing to soar, and he still can't believe his eyes. He's come so far. He's come a long way since the day he started a one-man operation in his garage, borrowing on credit cards, uh, borrowing against his house in Downers Grove. And he's had this staggering return now, and he's faced with a dilemma. What, I'm, what am I going to do with all this that's coming my way? This is still headed up and to the right. And then the lights go on. Verse 18, he says to himself, I know what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Notice he doesn't plan to do anything evil with his returns. Maybe he reaches for some blueprints from behind the desk, pulls them out, rolls them out on this mahogany desk, starts looking over this plan that's going to quadruple their infrastructure. He's thinking about riding a wave of prosperity into the future that he never could have conceived of in his blue-collar, middle-class upbringing. Sure, it's going to mean 16-hour days. Sure, it's going to mean, you know, uh, new HR systems because they're going to have to recruit the best and the brightest. Sure, they're going to have to cut new deals with suppliers and all that kind of thing. But he's looked at the ROIs. He's done the cost-benefit analysis. He's go over, gone over all the projections with his staff. He believes he's covered every contingency. And he reasons this, when I go through all this enormous effort and expansion, and once I hit the jackpot, verse 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years now. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He's saying, finally, I'm going to have what we all long for. I'm going to have that sense of self-worth because I'm going to go down as a legend in the industry. I'll have a sense of security because I'll have all that I need. I won't need any more, and I'll have this great sense of satisfaction, and I'll just eat, drink, and be merry. I'll vacation at the best resorts. I'll eat at the best restaurants. I'll collect the finest wines, and that will be life. And he no more than finishes that sentence. And he senses an uncomfortable feeling in his chest, a tightening, and he starts to perspire, and he attempts to stand up, and he can't, and there's a pain that shoots up his arm to his shoulders, to his neck, and into his jaw, and he collapses on the desk right on top of all these future plans and dreams. At about 6.30, his wife, ready to head to their favorite restaurant, sit at their favorite table, calls from the hallway, and he doesn't respond. And after the third time calling him, she walks over to the door of the office, and she sees him with his head down on the desk. She thinks he's sleeping, and she thinks, when is he ever going to slow down? She walks into the room, and she puts her hand on his shoulder to wake him 
and there's no response. His body's still warm, but he's gone. And just like that, everything changes. Autopsy says it's a massive, sudden heart attack. The irony is that this guy who developed a reputation throughout the business and financial community of covering every possible contingency for every unexpected scenario had no contingency plan for the most expected, anticipated, predictable event in life. Just go walk through any cemetery and you'll know we all die. I mean, it's not as if God has kept the future a secret from us. And while the financial community mourns and celebrates his life, God chose to eulogize this man with one word, a word that the Wall Street crowd who admired him and emulated him, a word that would never have crossed their mind. Verse 15, God said to him, you fool. You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So let me ask you, what was this guy's fatal flaw? Why did God call him a fool? Was it because he was affluent? Can't be that. There are many affluent people in Scripture. Moses, David, Solomon, Nicodemus, Barnabas. God did great things through the lives of these affluent people. Was it what he proposed to do with his wealth that was, made him a fool? He, he desired to preserve it, grow it, tear down his barn, build bigger ones? No, that made sense. If God's given you a return, it's just good stewardship. It's good management to grow it. So what's his fatal flaw? According to Jesus, a fool is someone who lives no, with no thought of God in their life. With no thought of his activity in their life and in this world. You know, maybe he had reasoned that one day when, when he was sitting back, when he was taking life easy, eat, drinking, and be merry, then he would reflect on matters of the soul. Then he would reflect on God's place in his life. But he was so busy making a living that he missed out on making a life. And Jesus concludes his teaching by saying in verse 21, he says, this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Jesus isn't criticizing his affluence, he's criticizing his arrogance. It wasn't wrong to plan for the future. It's that his future plans didn't include God. And he fell for the myth that has plagued human beings for century after century after century that life is found in the abundance of our possessions. See, this guy was trying to meet these three needs that we all have. The need for self-worth. The need for security. The need for satisfaction. Isn't there in all of us the desire to prove, to enhance, to validate our self-worth by how much we have, by our bling, by our possessions? It starts in us when we're kids. I'm the youngest of six kids, three boys, three girls in my family. So as the youngest, I got hand-me-down everything in my life. 
I got the hand-me-down crib, the hand-me-down high chair, the hand-me-down toys, the hand-me-down clothes. I got hand-me-down bicycles. And when I was eight years old, I got my brother Mike's hand-me-down Schwinn Stingray bicycle. Oh, can anybody feel? That was awesome. And he repainted it for me. He put a brand new banana seat on it, sissy bar in the back. Man, I knew I was somebody because I had this Schwinn Stingray bicycle. It gave me a sense of self-worth, and I thought that was great until Ron Bush, who lived around the corner from me, pulled up in his brand new Schwinn Lemon Peeler. (laughs) Five-speed. Hand front brakes little spoked wheel on the front end with a shock absorber and it was just so cool and all of a sudden you know I lost my sense of self-worth because to be a somebody I thought I had to have what Ron Bush had all our lives the media keeps telling us in order to be somebody's we got to drive cars with certain insignias we got to live in certain houses we got to wear certain clothes we got to dine in the right spots vacation at the right places join the right clubs this is what drives the I've got to keep up with the Joneses syndrome in us. I've got to prove that I matter. And so a successful Wall Street guy says, I know what I'll do. I'll just tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store my surplus grain. I will do it. Does that sound me-centric to you? Here's what I will do. I will tear down. I will build. I will say to myself. He uses, he refers to himself nine times in two verses. And so we get in this mad scramble to make more so we can have more so we can prove that we are worth more. When my wife Barbara and I got married, I had this uh, cast iron children's bank. It was about this big. It was an antique that somebody had given to me, a family friend, when I was a child. And it was kind of beat up. Paint was worn off of it. And it was cracked. And, and it had this little man, though, in this cast iron that you would put a penny or a nickel or something in and you'd pull a lever and he'd, he'd drop the the coin into the bank. And I had always had this children's bank prominently displayed on a shelf in my bedroom where I intended to continue to prominently display it after we got married. But Barbara had different interior design ideas than I did. And she thought it might look better maybe displayed in our closet. And I tried to explain to her, I said, honey, this is an antique. People collect this stuff. It's worth something. And and she said, oh, who would want that ugly thing? She said, she said, you ought to just give it away or, you know, and if you got $5 for it at a garage sale, you ought to feel guilty about that. I said, no, honey, really, I think this thing is worth something. You ought to check it out. And finally, over time, I convinced her to check it out. And she took it to an antique store one day. And the guy, she, she walked in, she says, my husband has this antique bank and he insists it's worth something. And she goes, I, I wonder what you'd give us for it. And the guy says, I'll give you $120 for it. Now, do you think my wife is going to take $120 for this bank that she would have given away 10 minutes earlier? Not on your life. She calls me. She says, she's all excited. She says, honey, honey, guess what? Our bank, (laughs) our bank might be worth a lot more than we thought it was. Now it's our bank. So she starts contacting collectors. We find this collector in Pennsylvania who offers us $2,000 for this little bank. Now, do you think my wife is going to take $2,000 for this bank? Not on your life. Now, to make a long story short, we eventually sold this bank to a collector in Washington, D.C. for $4,000. Aren't you happy for us? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. (laughs) Uh, 
All of a sudden, we were going through all our closets going, what other junk do we have in here? You know? <laughs> now, I told you that story to remind you of something that we all know, and that is value is determined by what somebody's willing to pay for something. The value of that bank was not determined by what it was worth to Barbara. It was determined what a collector would pay for. The value of your house is not determined what an appraisal says it's worth. Value is ultimately determined what somebody will pay you for that house. Listen, your worth, your value was established by the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Almighty God, by the shedding of his blood, by his death, by his burial, and his resurrection for you. And if we can ever get that sorted through in our minds and get our hearts in the right place, we will be able to walk away from deals. We will be able to walk away from shopping centers. We will be able to walk out of stores and say, I don't have to prove myself worth anymore by the purchase of happiness. My worth was approved and established by on the cross of Jesus Christ when he gave my, his life for me. Friends, I would give anything if you could own that truth in your life, if you could bask in that truth in your life, if you would just open your heart to that, it would change your entire sense of self-worth and you could stop this endless pursuit for more. Your self-worth is not determined by your net worth. Another need we all have is security. After the success of his latest initiative, the guy in our story says, then I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. And then I'll, he's just saying, I'll have true security. I got plenty laid up for many years. I saw a cartoon one time that was when something like this. It was showed this woman going to a cemetery to visit her husband's grave. And it said, R.J. Harwell, born 1932, Gave up smoking, 1965. Gave up alcohol, 1972. Gave up red meat, 1980. Gave up fried food, 1988. Began walking, 1994. Died anyway, 2003. That's just the truth for all of us, right? And no matter how much we accumulate, we're going to die. And how much is all that stuff going to bring you security then? It's interesting to me that this Wall Street guy just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated, and there's no suggestion anywhere in this text that he ever gave anything away. He never thought about how some of his stuff, how some of his possessions could be used to advance causes that are close to the heart of God, that could be used to meet the needs of people. You see, wealth pays for an illusion. I have security without the need for God. And friends, that's just pseudo-security. And if you find yourself, if you find your security in your stuff, you're going to be on the lookout for anybody and anything that threatens to take some of your stuff. Because that's where your life is. To give some of it away, that's unthinkable to you because that's where your security is. It's in your stuff. I was speaking out in Rockford a while back, and I was very inspired during the services that day the pastor interviewed a woman in the church she was a young single mom she had a seven-year-old daughter she told about how two or three years earlier her only source of income was a unemployment check and she'd also been going to school and she was trying to support her young daughter 
And it was about that time in her life that a woman in their church challenged her that she needed to honor God by returning the first portion, the first tithe of her income to God and trust that God would meet her needs. Well, that was overwhelming thought to her. She had so little, and she thought, how am I going to tithe off what the, I'm on unemployment. And she talked that day about how with fear and trembling, she wrote her first tithe check, and she decided to trust God. She wrote it for $33. And then she talked about how over the next year, the next two years, the next three years, God just started providing for her, and God met all of her needs, and she finished school, and she got a nice job, and she'd been able to buy a little starter house for she and her daughter and she said to the pastor you tell those folks out there this really works to trust God in this way but then she said this week I thought maybe it was all going to fall apart she said my water heater went out and my car broke down and I thought how am I going to pay for that and then she said but God provided some mechanics in her church fixed the car this single mom and then she said that week she got two unexpected checks in the mail she got a 220 dollars check from a hospital bill that she had overpaid two years earlier and she got a 50 dollars rebate check in the mail for a total of 270 dollars unexpectedly you know what her new water heater cost that week 269 dollars and when i heard her story and i watched her trust in god made me think of something that Jesus taught in this parable, or just after this parable, in Luke chapter 12, in the same passage, just a few verses later, he says in verse 24, he says, consider the ravens, you know, look at these birds, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds? Jesus says to these people, gathered thousands of people, hey, let's all take a moment right now, let's just look at the birds. They go, Jesus, we don't have time to look at the birds. We got mortgage payments to make. We got college tuition that we're making. We got credit card bills that are coming due at the end of the month. We don't have to just look at the birds. Watch them as they do their barrel rolls in the sky. Listening to them chirp and sing. You notice you don't see any stress on their face. No high blood pressure in that bird. There's no therapist next to that bird. No migraine headaches going on. No wrinkles. That little bird has no Swiss bank account with millions of dollars. That little bird has no million-dollar life insurance policy. That little bird is always, you know, that little bird doesn't have any barns filled to the brim with bird seed. No, that little bird is always just one little worm away from starvation. And yet you never see a bird at midnight all insecure, pacing the limb in anxiety. What am I going to eat tomorrow? What if there's no worms and cockroaches out there for me tomorrow? They just go to sleep. And he says, hey, if God provides for the birds and you are much more valuable than the birds to God, can't you trust him to provide for you? If you really put your money in a secure place, Jesus says this in verse 33. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will neither fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. But build yourselves treasures in heaven. Notice this word moth. It's an interesting word. In the original Greek language, it comes from the word nemarkos, from which we get the word Neiman Marcus from. No, that's not true. I just made that up. 
Jesus was saying, don't try to find your security in your stuff. Don't try to find your security in your stuff because some moths are going to eat it. Rust is going to destroy it. People are going to steal it. It's all just going to be dust one day. That car you think you just have to have is going to be dust someday. That, that business you're going to spend a lifetime building is going to just be dust one day. That portfolio you're going to invest in and you're going to sweat over and you're going to lose uh, sleep over, it's just going to be dust one day. So Jesus says, when you give to causes that are close to the heart of God, you're providing a security that will never wear out. You are providing treasure in heaven. This guy in the parable, he did a great job building his earthly portfolio, but he neglected to ever ask, God, what kind of heavenly portfolio do you want me to build? How could you use some of my stuff to meet the needs, the physical needs, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs of the only thing that's going to last forever that I see in this life, and that's people. Just like the guy in the story, we're all in a desperate need to establish self-worth. We're all in a desperate search for security, and ultimately, we're all seeking, thirdly, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Notice last year that the Rolling Stones celebrated their 50th anniversary on a world tour. Mick Jagger and the gang all came out wearing their hearing aids, pushing their walkers on the stage. It was an amazing thing. You know, the Rolling Stones gave us what I think could be the theme song of many of us for the past 50 years. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Five decades later, that's still the complaint of the average American. Can't get no satisfaction got eight-foot ceilings at my house, which are great until I walk into somebody who has nine-foot ceilings, which are great until I walk into somebody's house who has 10-foot ceilings. Got eight-inch crown molding. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, you've got 10-inch crown molding. Oh, I can't get no satisfaction. Some of you are going to go out to eat after church today, right? And you're going to say to the person next to you, what are you hungry for? I don't know. What are you hungry for? I don't know. What are you hungry for? I don't know. What are you hungry for? You're hungry for something, but you don't know what you're hungry for. The Wall Street guy in our story lived with his illusion that he was headed toward a day that when things would finally slow down with a sense of self-worth and financial security, he would have ultimate satisfaction. And he could take life easy. He could eat, drink, and he'd be merry. But the reality is that stuff would never satisfy I mean, just look at the extremely affluent that you know or that in our world today and ask yourself, are they more satisfied, more satisfied in their marriages, more satisfied with life, more satisfied in their families? Friends, everything you're dreaming of, everything you're working so hard for can change just like that. Just ask some of the figure skaters who bit the ice in Sochi this week. Your dream can change just like that. A CEO is out for a jog and there's a sudden chest pain. And just like that, everything changes. Group of teenagers riding in a car misses stoplight, and just like that, everything changes. The doctor says to you, as you lay in a hospital bed, it's malignant, and there's nothing we can do, and just like that, everything changes. I'll never forget the Saturday morning I woke up a little over a decade ago, learned on the news that another tragedy had befallen the Kennedy family. John F. Kennedy Jr., John John, and his wife and his sister-in-law had disappeared in a small plane near Martha's Vineyard. 
And it kind of personally struck me in an unexpected way, and I think it was because John John and I were about the same age and had grown up together, and it just seemed so sudden. After their bodies were found and the wreckage of the plane was found, the National Transportation Board did their investigation, and do you know what they found, what they believe caused the crash? There was no mechanical problems with the plane. They believe that in the severe weather that night that JFK Jr. experienced what's called spatial disorientation. When you're experiencing spatial disorientation, you, you lose a sense of where you are, what way you're flying. You might be upside down and you think you're right side up, or you might be right side up and you think you're upside down, or you might think you're climbing and you're descending and all those kinds of things. And they think what happened was is that he got upside down in the weather and he thought he was climbing, and he just drove the plane straight into the ocean. You know, I came here today because sometimes we're flying through life so fast that we don't realize we've gotten upside down. We've gotten some things upside down. And from time to time, we have to just recalibrate in this area. And we have to say, Oh, no, I can't find my self-worth. I can't find my security. I can't find my satisfaction in my stuff. I can only find it in the life and the blood and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to reach in front of you, and uh, there's some pieces of paper that look like this. Would you all grab one of those and maybe a pen or a pencil and something to write with? If you were here last weekend for the start of this series, Tim taught about anger. And some of you know at the end of the message, he asked you to write down an area of anger that you struggle with. And then outside, outside the doors, out uh, as you're going toward the parking lots, outside in the exits today, there's like trash cans out there with fires going. And, and you can just you threw that cart away into that trash can. And I don't know what this says about the anger level of Parkview, but I understand it was quite a pyrotechnic display going on outside <laughs> last weekend. So here's what I'd like to ask you to do today. I'd like to ask you to say, which one of these three, or maybe it's two, or maybe it's all three, you think you struggle with? Trying to find your self-worth through your net worth. Trying to find your sense of security in how much you have or trying to find your satisfaction in money, and you know it will never bring it to you. Would you just write that down right now? And then when you're leaving 10 minutes, 15 minutes from now, just take that thing, wad it up, and when you go by those trash cans outside, just say, I'm done with that. I'm going to get it. I'm going to fly right side up and recalibrate. Let's bow our heads together. How about today if we all just took a moment right now with our heads bowed and we just got this area recalibrated in our souls. You know, if you're searching for meaning, for purpose, for self-worth, for satisfaction, for security in anything other than Jesus Christ, it's going to leave you empty. And maybe today you just want to tell Jesus... I need you, Jesus. I need you in my life. You established my sense of self-worth on a cross. You paid the price for me, establishing my value. My only security is in you because I'm, I know 
I'm going to have a last day on this earth, and the only thing that matters at that moment is my relationship with you. That's where security is. And only you can satisfy the deepest need of my soul. Only you. God, I thank you for the reminder today to me and all of us that life cannot be found in the abundance of our possessions, but it can only be found in the life, in the hope, in the grace, in the purpose, and in the love of your son, Jesus Christ. And we lift our prayers now in his name and for his sake. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, Parkview. It's been great to be with you today. Real privilege.